0: I was running under bombs and mortars falling with a huge lack of electricity and power just to send my
1: applications to different schools and programs. That Syrian refugee Mariella Shaker, three years ago she was in Syria, bound and determined to go to school in the United States. Monmouth College in Illinois eventually offered her a scholarship. She says escaping the violence in Syria doesn't eliminate concern for family and friends still there. Another Syrian refugee on today's episode began capturing images of the civil war on her camera. And one activist describes the nightmarish aftermath of a sarin nerve gas attack in 2013 that killed more than 1,000 people. Those stories coming up. This is Aspen Ideas To Go, the podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. The war in Syria is now five years old, and the situation on the ground remains volatile. Russia and the United States negotiated a ceasefire this month, but it was violated less than an hour after it went into effect, according to the New York Times. The quick transgression, combined with an escalation of fighting before the ceasefire, underscores the ongoing carnage of the Civil War. One Aspen Ideas Festival speaker described the Syrian people as a population that has endured more of the horrors of contemporary history than any other group. They've faced secular and religious tyranny and mass atrocity. Half a million people have been killed, and millions of others are refugees inside Syria and in countries across the globe. At the Aspen Ideas Festival in June, survivors shared their stories on stage. We'll begin with their eyewitness accounts. Later in the show, we'll hear from Frederick Hoff about solutions to the crisis. He directs the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. But first, Mariella Shakur. She's a violinist who uses her music to raise awareness about the plight of the Syrian people. She remembers her strong desire to come to the United States, even as a child. My desire
0: to come to this country grew up since I was still in the middle school. When I was telling my friends about my hope of coming here and getting a scholarship to continue my music education, they laughed. Now the dream is real. I was able to make it after years of researching and months of working tirelessly. I was running under bombs and mortars falling with a huge lack of electricity and power just to send my applications to different schools and programs. I got an amazing email from Monmouth College, a liberal arts school in Illinois, telling me that they accepted me into their music program with almost full tuition scholarship. I was beyond happiness. But even with full scholarship, tuition scholarship, affording room and board which were not covered by the institution, was a burden. This is because my parents have lost their jobs in the war and they couldn't even support me with one dollar. I kept searching online, hoping for a miracle to happen. I found about an organization called Jisour, and they are helping Syrian students and refugees. I reached out to them several times without getting a positive response. I thought that maybe I need to go to their website and find about their donors. I did so, and I started to Google each name. One of them, we had mutual friends on Facebook who also came here with scholarships. I sent to him my music videos from previous recitals and the acceptance letter I got from the college, and he was so impressed and he decided to support me during the first year, even that he did not know me in person. This kind man inspired me in so many ways, and he made me believe more in our humanity. Manath College opened their hearts and arms to welcome 19 Syrian students along the last two years. It was truly a life-changing to each one of us, and we are immensely grateful. Although I feel safe here in the U.S., I live in a constant fear about my family and friends who are still struggling badly in Syria, surviving with the basic necessities of life. I wonder if they will be alive tomorrow. I wonder if I will get the chance to see them again one day. When, where, and how Being a refugee taught me to be tough on myself, to be independent, to be strong, and among all, to never give up. Since I arrived here, I have been working so hard to achieve success in the music world. I graduated from Monmouth College, and I recently received another full tuition scholarship for the Master of Music program at DePaul University. I also performed and spoke at the White House United Nations Kennedy Center and others. I was named as the Goodwill Peace Ambassador for the World Council of Aramians and Champion of Change, White House Champion of Change 2015. Unable to return back home, I was granted asylum and I recently received my green card. It's a great opportunity to express my deep gratefulness to the United States, to whom, without their great help and support, I wouldn't have been able to be here today. In fact, the United States has always been the warm haven for millions of refugees from all over the world. In Syria, we have great human potentials. I'm super proud, particularly, of my Syrian friends who also made it to the US via scholarships three years ago, they graduated, and now they are getting some wonderful job opportunities, such as Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Apple, and Google. Sadly, life now in Syria is rather impossible. We are experiencing horror and death every day. Hundreds of civilians are being killed and tortured by such a savage civil war. We don't deserve this. We are in need to your help and support more than any time ago. It will be great if we can hopefully put our hands together to offer ambitious Syrian students a new home and a better education. I believe that there is nothing better than experiencing and investing in human being. One day, we will go back to Syria and carry all the wonderful values we learned in America. Today, I consider myself as not just a legally legitimate Syrian citizen, but also a new and devoted young American woman, all what we dream of, and wish for is a peaceful life and a hope for a better tomorrow. I feel powerless to change the current tragedy ongoing in my country. However, I believe so much in the power of music. As we all know, it's a universal language. Through music, we communicate, advocate, inspire, and express the things which are hard to be expressed by any word or language. Music is the bridge which has brought me to this country. I feel that music has the power to unite us and overcome our difficulties and differences, and I can prove this when I'm Christian myself and when I perform Jewish music for Muslim community. Mm -hmm. Today, I'm delighted to perform one of my favorite music pieces, a theme from Schindler List by John Williams. It, this piece truly means a lot to me. I very much hope music will help healing the pain our world has felt and create peace platform for everyone. Thank you.
2: Uh. you. Mar- Marielle, I have one question for you. Tell me, where is your family now in Syria, and where were you when the, when the war began five years ago?
0: I was still living in Syria by this time. Where?
3: Where in Syria? In, in
0: Aleppo. In Aleppo. And my family is still living there. I was the only able to leave based on the scholarship I received. And
2: are you still in touch with them in Aleppo? Can you reach them?
0: I try to call them every day just to make sure that they are still alive. It's very poor connections. I, I always have a lot of difficulties being able to connect.
1: This is the music of Syrian refugee Mariella Schocker. She performed and was interviewed at the Aspen Ideas Festival by Leon Wieseltier of the Brookings Institution. Next, we hear from Lubna Marie. She joined the Syrian Revolution at age 21 and participated in demonstrations before using her camera to capture images of the war. She's interviewed by Leon Wieseltier.
4: In the beginning of 2011, there was thousands of reasons to join the Syrian uprising. Um, so I became an activist, and someone today asked me, "What is, what do you mean by becoming an activist in Syria? Well, everything that you do here on a daily basis, like just talk and speak your mind, and um, Speak about injustice. This is this is what it means to be an activist in the Syrian uh, uprising. But for me, it was more than that. I was um, I started to do uh, photography and just decided to do everything I can. Uh, in 2012, uh, my mom was killed uh, by uh, Assad secret forces. Sadly one of my family members, which is my father, he, he's, he's, he's on the government side. He um, had a hand in it. It's a very mm. personal, very emotional thing to me, very painful, I don't really wanna go uh, through details. Um, so I fled, so I was in Turkey, from Turkey, I went to the liberated areas in Syria, I started to work as a photographer, as a photographer for uh, Reuters. Uh, on front lines. I think Syria, what needs right now, is a no-fly zone and someone who would take an action.
2: Tell us a little more about the period in when you were in Syria, in the opposition, doing your photography, where you went, what you saw, the period between then and when you left Syria.
4: Okay, so I uh, stayed photographing and the... Uh, rebel-held areas from 2000, late 2012 until 2014, until I got a fellowship by NYU and Magnum Foundation to come to this country and study uh, photography and human rights. So you were underground
2: know. in the rebel-held areas yes. applying for fellowships?
4: Yes. Right. Yeah, there was internet. Yes. Um, being here and watching the mainstream media, I think uh, it's, it's kind of sad to see how the mainstream media just focus on... uh, So you become to believe that, no, this is just a war between ISIS and the government, which is not this case at all. It is like until today, until 2016, it's still um, a war between people who asked for freedom and democracy uh, with their government, with Bashar al-Assad. yeah, I, uh, I just wanna say something about like the, like the whole term of uh, refugee. Uh, I feel like Syria and its refugee crisis became a very faceless struggle. So what I mean by faceless struggle is just like when you think about Syrian refugees, the only thing that comes to your mind is just like numbers or uh, a photo that was taken on the Greek uh, shore right. and the beautiful photos, don't get me wrong, but still, it's it's so painful and so heartbreaking for someone who was born and raised in Syria to like those people are, are are not just like broken people who are like you know just it's it's so disturbing many of those people were doctors and lawyers and may like many of them just like had factories uh, and they and they and they deserve a better. Way to get out, you know. They they they, uh, they deserve a visa to be stamped on their passport, just to avoid this painful trip across uh, across the sea. Um, also, what makes things even worse is some uh, politicians in this country, and here I mean Donald Trump. That uh, I don't know why they always associate Syrian refugees with ISIS, like. Did anyone tell Donald Trump how many Syrian people were killed by ISIS? It's, it's just, um, just ignorance. It's just, it's just ignorance. There are hundreds of people who were killed by uh, ISIS, whether activists, whether uh, photographers, whether Free Syrian army members. And a side note, not all of them were killed in Syria. Many of them now are killed uh, in Turkey. So after all of this, you meet an American in the subway, sorry, like, like not all the Americans are like that, but yeah. you meet an American on the L train in Brooklyn, be like, so, where are you from? Uh, you have an accent, like, I'm from Syria. They're like, oh, whoa, ISIS. Like, you know, just, just I feel uh, the media is not, not that fair anymore.
2: It's not just the media, you know, the, the America, American policy right now is to focus all our efforts in Syria on defeating ISIS and not to recognize that the crisis in Syria is Assad's war against his own population. Exactly, Pardon. I feel
4: I, uh, like, okay, so now uh, the world knows that yes, we have a problem called ISIS, but, but do you know that those Syrian refugees are fleeing the terror, both terror, the ISIS terror and, and the Assad government terror? Yeah, just this, this, this idea of uh, refugees. I was telling someone earlier today that it's really hard to understand what it's like to be a refugee if you were not one uh, yourself. So just a small example. In 2003, when the Iraqi refugees started to come to my country.
2: Uh-huh. Where in Syria is your family
4: from? Uh, it's on the coast, Latakia. So in 2003, we had many Iraqi refugees coming in. And I remember, like, seeing those people. I, like, I won't lie to you, but I was scared at some point. Like, who are those people? Like, even though uh, the news of the war was 24 hours on the local channels. But still, you won't understand what it's like to flee your country unless it happened to you.
1: Al Damouni is a Syrian activist who lives in East Ghouta near Damascus. In 2013, more than a thousand people were killed there after a Sarin gas attack. The United States has blamed the government of Bashar al-Assad for the atrocity, though government officials have denied involvement. Al Damouni is interviewed by David Ignatius, associate editor and columnist for the Washington Post.
5: And I now want to ask Aram to begin the narrative by telling us what happened on the day of August
6: 21st, 2013? What, what transpired on August 21st, 2013, was that one of the towns of eastern Ghouta was targeted with about 13 uh, chemical-laden rockets.
5: When this began, where? where, where yeah, this was late at night. Yes, where were you when you I
6: went? Was night? Night. Uh, I was in, in eastern Ghouta, in Duma, about two kilometers from uh, the impact site in Saqba.
5: And, and so, uh, as you described it to me earlier, you you walked out your door and you saw something startling that you'd never seen before. Describe what you saw. Sa'at
6: and ten, We, about 2 a.m., we got Mayday calls, an alarm, Mayday calls from uh, Saqba, that dozens of civilians uh, were in- unconscious. So we headed straight to, to Saqba, and to uh, our surprise, we found out that there were uh, dozens of bodies strewn across the streets. We didn't know if they were, if they just passed out, or if they were dead or injured there were there were no wounds or signs of bleeding which was unusual because most of those who get injured in Ghouta, you know that happens because of shelling and bombardment so we went to the medical points and there we saw tens of uh, of similar cases some of those injured were uh, rushed to Duma because Duma was not was not targeted that day
5: Aram, i want to ask you so that people can see with your eyes, what you saw when you first came out at 2 a.m. were these people, the bodies lying in the street, uh, unconscious? Were these were these fighters who'd been involved in the fight, or were they simple civilians?
6: Actually, when we went, uh, when we rushed to Sakba. We realized that the overwhelming majority of victims were civilians, mostly women and children, because most of them actually were targeted in, inside their houses inside their bedrooms, some of them were sleeping, so they, they, I think they didn't feel anything because they you know that happened during their sleep they, they inhaled sarin when they were sleeping and no one, no one could, could uh, so, save them
5: so you were one of the medical people who were helping the victims, you must have been exposed yourself to this uh, gas. I think this audience would be interested to know that in the years after this attack in 2013, you and thousands of others had uh, secondary consequences. So
6: I rushed to Saqba uh, when we first learned about the attack as a media activist because we wanted to cover what was happening because the number of casualties was overwhelming and because uh, the, the chemical attack was actually followed up with attacks on medical facilities in Ghuta, in Saqba. So it was a humanitarian imperative on me and other media activists to actually try and help with what was uh, uh, going on. on. On the first anniversary of the chemical attacks, we actually uh, did some uh, reporting uh, in Saqba and in Ain So we, we conducted a tour and we realized that some of those victims were still uh, <laughs> uh, suffering from symptoms a year after the attack. Some had lapses uh, lapse of memory, shortness of breath, and uh, uh, eye, uh, pain, eye pain. I was one of those who were exposed to sarin, but it was, a, it was a small amount. Even, even though I was exposed to uh, a tiny amount, three years uh, after that happened, I still suffer from uh, uh, some symptoms, such as shortness of breath.
5: We're talking about sarin nerve gas, one of the most deadly gases that's been used, one of the most toxic chemical agents that the U.S. and other countries have have sought to ban. On the night that Aram is describing and the surrounding time, it's believed that 1,400 people, mostly women and children, were killed in the town where he lives. In addition are the people who suffered after. So I wanna ask Aram whether before that attack, you had ever heard about a statement from our president that any use of chemical weapons by the Syrian regime would be crossing a red line. So, before uh, before the uh,
6: chemical attacks happened, we used to hear statements coming out of Washington, D.C., such as, uh, you know, from, from Secretary Clinton, who was at the time Secretary of State, that uh, you know, that they had red lines in Syria, that, uh, that the regime should not have crossed, that Assad had to step down, that he had to step aside, that Assad had no role to play in, in future Syria, that use of chemical uh, gases would be, uh, if, that if the regime deployed chemical gases, that would be crossing of, of, uh, of a red line. We were uh, uh, familiar and aware of those uh, statements coming uh, from, from the United States, uh, but uh, what, ha- what actually happened was that after uh, every... Uh, state, so every statement that was made, the regime actually committed a massacre, and those massacres massacres culminated with the slaughter of 1,400 people uh, on, on the on the night the chemical attacks happened, which also uh, involved thousands of uh, um, thousands of people were injured and 1,400 people were killed. And after sarin was used, another gas was deployed, which is chlorine gas. For us, for us, as far as you know, as Syrians are concerned. For us, it's not just about you know how you kill us, and you know whether or not you use internationally banned uh, uh, weapons such as such as sarin. Uh, there are other weapons uh, that are that have been deployed and employed by the regime to kill us, such as white phosphorus, cluster munitions that were used in uh, against uh, Eastern Ghouta. Sir, do you actually know that since the so-called cessation of hostilities was announced? Just in Ghouta, Eastern Ghouta alone, uh, more than 23 massacres have been committed, resulting in more than 350 uh, uh, casualties uh, among civilians.
5: I would just note, since this audience uh, I'm sure is aware that after this uh, attack in 2013 and the president's decision not to launch military strikes, an agreement was made to remove Syrian uh, chemical weapons jointly with Russian supervision. The Syrian American Medical Society uh, recently published a report saying that chemical weapons attacks have continued so frequently that they are, in the words of this group, the new normal. They counted 65 attacks with chlorine gas last year alone. That is in the year after all chemical weapons supposedly had been removed. From Syria. So, this is, uh, there's always a chance to draw another uh, red line. Um, I want to uh, ask uh, Aram, uh, because this is such a, a painful story, there's another part of his life that I think people would be interested in, uh, in which uh, Syrians are trying to build local governance in the areas that they control uh, and make some kind of uh, governance work. And maybe, Aram, you could tell us about the local councils that are operating uh, in East, East Ghouta and in other areas, what they're doing and how you're trying to pick up the pieces after this uh, disaster. Uh, after
6: we liberated towns in Eastern Ghouta from the Assad regime, we established local councils. After Assad lost control of Eastern Ghouta, Assad started targeting the infrastructure in, uh, in areas that were not under his control. As a result, we, we don't have, uh, 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 you know, the power was killed, and no, ener- no uh, you know, fuel, no, you know, drinking water. So we established these local councils to try and provide some of those services. Eastern Ghouta has been under siege for more than three years now. Nothing in and out, including medicine, medications, uh, food. Without, within one year, only more than 500 people starved to death as a result of the siege. We pleaded with the international community and the United Nations. So the first time a UN delegation actually made it into Ghouta, it was that UN delegation was headed, by, headed up by a UN officer by the name of Yaqub al hulu So they they they, uh, they brought in some uh, some trucks with them, but those trucks were not uh, uh, were not uh, were not even sufficient for one percent. Of, of uh, those living under siege in uh, about 500,000 people live in Ghouta, suffer from lack of food, medicine. Uh, so th- these local councils try to meet some of those needs through basic uh, uh, initiatives, such as uh, um, you know raising uh, uh, crops in, on some farmland, uh, yeah. because Ghouta was uh, uh, the, uh, was arable land uh, due to the. Grave humanitarian situation in Ghouta, We actually placed hopes uh, and 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 trusted the uh, the recent diplomatic arrangement. But neither the regime nor Russia, uh, neither the regime nor Russia nor Iran actually abided by the terms of the uh, the cessation of hostilities. And there was no uh, uh, there was no um, uh, measures for protecting civilians. There were no international monitors to actually uh, observe. Uh, the cessation on the ground and, and, and enforce uh, enforce it. so during the ceasefire the, the, the uh, Assad regime forces actually seized uh, territory in Ghouta with the support of, of Russian and regime uh, air forces. so they they, control, they, they captured uh, thousands of, of uh, farm uh, he, uh, hectares.
5: Again this is after the, the cessation of, of hostilities. so uh, unfortunately the time allotted for this session, has ended. Uh, uh, this is a, Syria is an abstraction for all of us. It is a, a word that comes up almost every day in our presidential campaign. It's very unusual to be able to hear someone describe this not as an abstraction, but as so, something he lived through. So please join me in thanking him and all the people here.
1: So how will the Syrian conflict be stopped? To get a broader picture of the complex situation, we move to a panel discussion at the Aspen Ideas Festival. There, Frederick Hoff of the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East sits down with David Ignatius of the Washington Post and Mohammed ala Ghanem. Ghanem is a strategist for the Syrian American Council. His work connects U.S. policymakers and the Syrian American community with the revolution inside Syria. The men spoke in late June. Here's their conversation.
5: This last part of our deep dive on Syria is meant to examine uh, what should be done. What are the steps that US policy can, can take? Uh, we'll be talking, I think, for many years about how, how these events happened. That's not our subject here. We want to focus on what can be done in the remainder of President Obama's administration. Uh, and what can be done by the next president. Uh, Mohammed and, and, and Fred have been introduced to you. I just want to add one thing about Fred. In his position at the Atlantic Council, he has been, more than anyone I know, the conscience for former Foreign Service officers, people who care deeply about this problem, who served in the US government. Uh, if you read a compendium of uh, Fred's writings on this, um, they're, they're painful, each one of them, because they're so focused. Fred saw this coming a long time ago, and he is consistently uh, warned about its consequences. Fred, I want to be- begin with you with a question on what to do, and I want to start with the unusual, <coughs> courageous statement by 51 of your former State Department officers who in the dissent channel, as it's called, uh, filed uh, their protest against the current uh, configuration of, of U.S. policy. Fred wrote a statement, because many of these people look to Fred Hoff uh, as their beacon. Fred wrote a statement saying, Americans, however, sh- despite all the disasters, should be proud that serving officials have protested a morally vacuous and politically bankrupt policy and have done so in the proper way through the designate- designated channel. So Fred, uh, the basic thrust of the 51 officers' recommendations was that the US needs more military leverage Mm -hmm. to be able to make the diplomacy that Secretary Kerry is committed to work. Explain to us how, how that might how that might proceed, what, what that leverage might mean, and what difference it might make on the ground and in Geneva, at the negotiations.
3: Sure, thanks, David. I, I think first, first of all, it's important to understand what these, what these 51 combination of foreign service officers and civil servants, what they were actually saying. They were, they were not calling for the invasion and occupation of Syria. They were not calling for violent regime change in Syria. <coughs> They were not calling for a strategic bombing campaign in Syria. What they were trying to address was, was one central fact that I think we really, we really heard in the, previous, in the previous groups today. The Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad, for over five and a half years, has been pursuing a survival strategy based on collective punishment and mass homicide it is literally paying no price for this strategy. No price, maybe aviation fuel, but even that's probably subsidized by Iran. What these officers are saying is unless there is some price paid here, the mass homicide is going to continue, Syria will continue to empty itself, and there is going to be no prospect of peace negotiations. We're going to be hearing later from uh, Secretary of State Kerry. This guy has an impossible job. He has absolutely no leverage. He's got a smile and a shine, basically, and he's trying to convince the Russians and the Iranians to lean on their client to do the right thing. Now, these folks have come up with one answer, uh, basically cruise missiles against regime helicopter bases when they go up to attack civilians? That may be the answer. I'm not sure. I was once a military professional. I think what's needed here is for the President of the United States to turn to his Secretary of Defense and say, look, Ash, we can't protect everyone in all places, but there's got to be a way to make this guy pay a price can you please give me some options? Cruise missiles may be on the menu. I don't know. But the key thing is a statement of intent by the American commander-in-chief to his secretary of defense. That's what's been lacking.
5: So, Fred, let me just uh, push back. If President Obama or one of his advisors were here, they would say it's Fine to talk about about military leverage, but one thing we've learned as a country is this is a slippery slope, and what begins with a limited policy uh, quickly becomes something more than that. And we've seen President Obama has spoken to his military commanders, and he's asked them, can you assure me that if we start this, it won't end up in something much bigger? So how would you answer that question, which I know uh, president Obama, uh, anybody in the White House would, would want to put to you?
3: It's a legitimate question. I mean, what we know five and a half years into this crisis is that there are no silver bullets for Syria. This is the quintessential problem from hell. And given where we are now, five and a half years into this, our choices are basically between, between bad and worse. What I would urge, though, and I think what the President realizes, is that, is that, is that risk does not only attach to limited military strikes. Risk attaches to the way we've pursued this policy for the past five and a half years. If, if somebody, if, if I had had the foresight to tell President Obama in late 2011 that here is where we would be in 2016 if you do the following actions, the red line and, and all, this, all this business, surely he would say, oh no, that would be be a reckless policy. We can't go down that road. I mean, look at the implications. If it's not bad enough for the people of Syria, their neighbors, look look at what's happening in, in Europe. Can we really dismiss the possibility that the Syrian crisis has had a major impact on the recent vote in the United Kingdom? You know, to the extent that immigration weighed on the minds, migrants weighed on the minds of people who are voting. Well, what's the main source of this? It's the crisis in Syria. So if we're going to look at risk, we, we ought to look at the, the, the risks attached to the way we've pursued this so far, leaving civilians on the bullseye, leaving Bashar al-Assad perfectly free to do what he wishes to civilians when he chooses to do it.
5: Iraq, I think, taught uh, everyone in this room, taught the whole country the dangers of military intervention. This story that we've been listening to uh, from each of the participants has taught us all the dangers of not intervening, what the right policy is, uh, is, is somewhere in between. Mohammed, I want to turn to you and ask you about what the president has been trying to do uh, last February 28, uh, Secretary Kerry announced with Minister Lavrov a process leading to, uh, it was argued, cessation of hostilities. Uh, the negotiations, the conversations will be centered in, in Geneva. And I want you to uh, explain to this audience why that process, why that effort to seek a diplomatic solution, a reduction in violence, seems to be failing. What's going, ro- what's going wrong with it? And what could be done to make that work better? About a year and a half ago, uh,
6: we had a uh, meeting at the, at the White House, and it was with uh, senior officials. We realized that the administration had made the decision, although that was not communicated at the meeting. But we uh, were able to you know, read between the lines. We realized that the administration had made the decision that for the remainder of Mr. Obama's second term, they were mainly going to focus on Uh, what what they called violence reduction measures. Uh, So that's why they they pursued a cessation of hostilities or a ceasefire uh, in in Syria. And that they pretty much, although they didn't say that uh, explicitly, they pretty much uh, had given up uh, hope on an actual political track and transition in Syria. Of course, this was not communicated publicly. What was communicated publicly was that they were pursuing a diplomatic track, they were serious about the transition, and they, they wanted the cessation of hostilities. They went into uh, talks with with the Russians uh, with no leverage. Uh, the Russians maximized their leverage before they went into talks in September 30th, 2015. They intervened in Syria. They they started a bombing campaign against the Syrian opposition. So they had a lot of leverage. The American side had had no leverage. So. Uh, fast forward to 2016, what actually transpired in Geneva, where you had this unit uh, that monitored Russian American unit that monitored uh, violations of the cessation of hostilities. What actually was, was going on there is basically them meeting, uh, and you know, the American side would present daily violations, and, uh, and the Russians would, would deny that those violations happened, or would say it was not the Assad regime, or it was Nusra. Um, and uh, there was no enforcement mechanism. And like uh, uh, as as Fred Hoff said, uh, Secretary Kerry, all Secretary Kerry, could do was you know pick up the phone and, and speak with Lavrov and, and, and say you know this is you know is like we should we should know better. It shouldn't be the case. We should uh, this is not in the best interest of Russia. Uh, so those powers of persuasion uh, were insufficient. And because of that, this decision of hostilities has actually collapsed because the regime was able to violate it at will. No enforcement mechanism. No monitors on the ground. And uh, then a, uh, the Syrian Al-Qaeda uh, affiliate, Jabhat Nusra, that was not party to the ceasefire or the decision of hostilities, after a month and about 45 days of continued violations at will by the regime and the Russians, they were able to convince others to, you know, launch a counterattack, and the ceasefire collapsed. And uh, they were only able to galvanize support when those violations occurred and there were no uh, consequences. So I think what should happen, what the, the next administration uh, uh, should do, is that they should definitely heed the, the calls of those 51 diplomats who all worked on Syria in different capacities at the State Department, and they should introduce what has. Been, uh, hitherto been missing in, in U.S. policy towards Syria, which is consequences for failing to comply with
5: serious diplomatic efforts. Otherwise, we're not going to get it anywhere. So, Fred, it's amazing uh, to think that it was less than a year ago that Russia intervened militarily. R- Russia's become such a dominant fact on the ground now. Uh, in some ways, uh, uh, Russia has taught us a lesson in what the ruthless use of power uh, is about, you know, you've studied Syria, you've lived there, uh, you know it intimately, what difference uh, is this larger Russian uh, role, this decisive re- Russian presence, uh, going to make in terms of, of the future of that country and indeed the, the region? Are, are the Russians in the Middle East now in a, in a more serious way uh, to stay?
3: Uh, I think uh, I think they are, and I think I, I think a lot of this uh, a lot of this goes to uh, President Putin's personal analysis uh, of what it's going to take for him uh, to stay in power indefinitely in Russia. Uh, what Putin has been telling his own people, and what he told the UN General Assembly uh, last September, just before intervening, is that his agenda is to defeat the so-called. American regime change and democratization agenda in the Middle East. And where he intends to defeat it is in Syria. Uh, So Russia intervened uh, last September when uh, when its client, Bashar al-Assad, was having some military problems. They've reversed all that. Uh, They're on the verge now of besieging the city of Aleppo causing more and more refugees to get on the road and uh, race in the direction of Turkey and perhaps ultimately in the, in the direction, of, uh, direction of Europe. Look, there, there, are, there, are no, there are no easy answers to this. Certainly, we shouldn't be looking for a military confrontation with Russia over Syria. I don't think there's anyone in this room, starting with me, who has a detailed idea of what the Syria of the future should look like and how to get there. But I think I know one thing for sure. As long as civilians are on the bullseye, as long as civilians are on the bullseye, nothing good can happen, period.
5: I want to ask, Fred, for a a brief uh, last word, because our our time uh, basically has expired. And uh, Fred, I I guess what I'd put to you uh, is, I sometimes think uh, that we need a 1944 moment. Uh, In 1944, before World War II was over, Franklin Roosevelt began thinking seriously about how to govern the world after the war ended. How, you know, and, and so in 1944, the IMF, the World Bank, the Atlantic Charter, the f- Framework for the United Nations all began to be drafted with, with still a year of fighting left. Do you have any brief thoughts? If we were to have a 1944 moment together here in Aspen, what, what, would, you, what would you put into that bag? Well, for, uh, first
3: of all, I'm happy to say that 1944 is even before my time. That's, uh, <laughs> Um, you know, as it, as it happens, at least in the context of Middle East, North Africa, this is something that, uh, that my organization, the Atlantic Council, is very much looking into now. We have something called the Middle East Strategy Task Force. And I would, I would urge everyone here to, to keep an eye on the deliberations of this body. We have, uh, we have uh, Madeleine Albright.
5: You've rounded up many and, former... Uh, yeah, we
3: have, we have, we 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 have, and, and Steve Hadley basically. This is a this is a bipartisan a bipartisan effort to try to define what is it exactly that's happening in the Middle East that has caused this international crisis, and how how can we in the West, and because we're the Atlantic Council, it's the transatlantic community, how can we at least on the margins try to make some of this turn out right. What we have from one end of Middle East, North Africa to the other is a crisis in governing legitimacy. If you look at the different countries of the Middle East, how many can you actually point to where there is, within country X, virtually unanimous consensus on the rules of the political game? All right. Some people may make an argument for Morocco, some for Jordan, but, but in general, what we're facing is a breakdown in political legitimacy. The, the question for most of these countries is, what really follows the Ottoman Sultan <laughs> as the source of political legitimacy? So we're, we're, looking, into, uh, we're looking into ways and means where the West, where the transatlantic community can be helpful through education, through mostly, mostly soft power, uh, in helping the states of this region uh, come up with the right answers to end these civil wars and actually uh, actually get their countries going on the right path. I don't know that it's a 1944 moment, but, uh, but at least we're trying. So
5: when I listen to people like Mohammed Ghanem and, and, and Fred Hoff, I know ju- just how serious this problem is. Also, I know what good policy would look like. So thank you very much.
1: Frederick Hoff directs the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. David Ignatius is associate editor and columnist for the Washington Post. And Mohammed al is a strategist for the Syrian American Council. They spoke on June 28, 2016 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please take a minute to rate us on iTunes. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year round on Facebook and Twitter at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.